Good morning. You're listening to the news on Independent Radio for the People. I'm Paul Durienzo. Israel withdrew troops from the West Bank city of Jenin on Wednesday after an attack that killed 12 Palestinians and an Israeli soldier. On Tuesday, Israeli forces lobbed tear gas grenades at a hospital caring for hundreds of the wounded. The army claimed to have inflicted heavy damage on militant groups in the operation, which included a series of airstrikes and hundreds of ground troops. Richard Silverstein reports on the conflict. He says the action is what Israel's military calls mowing the lawn. So far, 11 Palestinians have been uh, murdered by Israel in the attack on Jenin. At least 1,000 residents of Jenin have become refugees. Israel is telling, the IDF is telling residents to abandon their homes. They're forced to flee from Jenin. These are people whose ancestors were driven out of Israel itself and became refugees in 1948. So they're now a second time becoming refugees. This operation has been ongoing for a couple of days, and Israel uh, still occupies almost all of the town. And in addition, Israel today attacked the hospital in Jenin and fired into the hospital, forced all the patients and medical staff to flee the hospital. I should add that all of this constitute war crimes, and the International Criminal Court is already investigating Israel for war crimes. We'll have to add this to the list of things that it will hopefully hold Israel accountable for. As to be expected, a Palestinian rammed a car today into Israelis standing at a bus stop. Seven Israelis were injured. The attacker was killed by a civilian who was there at the scene. It's important for listeners to know that these attacks will go answered, will be answered by Palestinians, and there is no possible way in which military operations like this one in Janine can succeed at doing whatever the goal is that Israel has set for them. It's being called a failure already that the people they were looking for uh, disappeared. It's question. Certainly that's the reason they say they're doing this. But Janine has been the origin of several attacks against Israelis. And the last time that they entered Janine, the militants, the fighters, placed IEDs, explosive devices, in the road, and the Israeli armored vehicles were destroyed. So the next step for the Israelis was to basically invade Janine with hundreds of Israeli troops, armored vehicles. They used armed drones to destroy homes in the town. So this was really a revenge attack against Janine. The goal isn't necessarily to root out quote-unquote terrorists, but the goal is really to punish all of the people of Janine for the militants uh, who are among them. This is another war crime. Collective punishment is a violation of international law. Are you saying that the Israeli government doesn't have a strategy? The Israeli government, the term that they use is mowing the lawn, which is a really awkward, unfortunate term. What they do is they cut the grass, and then they know that the grass is going to grow back, and then they're going to have to cut the grass again. Even they realize that this is an ongoing situation that will never end as long as Israel refuses to come to a final settlement of all of the outstanding disputes between them and the Palestinians, which there's absolutely no motivation or interest by Israel in doing so, it will continue on 
infinitum, unfortunately. It's an endless cycle of violence, murder, and all the rest that goes along with that. The United States has made some protestations. They don't like what's going on. Is there any hope that Israel's biggest backer will do anything? No, there isn't. The Biden administration is basically captive to the Israel lobby on this issue. Biden is dependent on wealthy pro-Israel American Jews and Christian evangelicals who provide a huge amount of uh, financial support to his campaign. He is really beholden to those forces. They are going to prevent him from taking any position about this. However, the only bright side of this is that the uh, progressive forces in the Democratic Party are getting stronger on this issue. Gallup poll, for the first time, said more Democrats support Palestine than support Israel, which is really an important development, and it will eventually force the mainstream elements in the party to change their positions on the conflict. It gives a little bit more power to the progressive forces like the squad and the House of Representatives who are taking a much more robust position on this. Richard Silverstein is an independent journalist and researcher writing about Israeli foreign policy. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to return to Janine and carry out similar military assaults. In Ukraine, the Kremlin is warning the situation at a Ukrainian nuclear plant under Russian control is tense. They claim there's a threat of sabotage from Kyiv. The warning comes after Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky charged Moscow as creating dangerous provocations at the power station. Meanwhile, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev said 185,000 new recruits had joined the Russian army as professional contract soldiers since the start of the year. He added almost 10,000 signed up in the week after the abortive Wagner Group mutiny. In national news, last week the United States Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, dealing a setback to one important means of redressing more than a century of discrimination against people of color in higher education. The most recent court appointee, Katanji Brown Jackson, recused herself from part of the decision. She has a BA and a law degree from Harvard, one of the most difficult schools in the country to get into. She says the ruling is a let-them-eat-cake moment and a tragedy for all of us. Affirmative action was on conservatives' hit list after last year's reversal of Roe v. Wade, the momentous abortion ruling. Pennsylvania Representative Manny Guzman read from Justice Sonia Sotomayor's scathing dissent. You know, I'd like to read a little bit from Judge Sonia Sotomayor, the first Latina on the Supreme Court representing our community. And in her dissent today, she wrote these words, and I quote, Ignoring race will not equalize a society that is racially unequal. She continues, what was true in 1860 and again in 1954 is true today. Equality requires acknowledgement of inequality, end quote. Let me repeat that last line again. Equality requires acknowledgement of inequality. From the White House, President Joe Biden said he strongly, strongly disagreed with the court's ruling and urged colleges to seek other routes to diversity rather than let the ruling be the last word. 
Dr. Kevin Kumashiro is the former dean of the School of Education at the University of San Francisco and co-founder of Education Deans for Justice and Equity. He says political forces who are in favor of privatizing education are the main backers of the lawsuit against Harvard and the University of North Carolina's affirmative action policies. Some of the people who are pushing for ways of thinking differently about school funding, like vouchers and choice and things like that, are some of the same people pushing for censorship on issues like don't talk about CRT, don't talk about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, don't say gay, those kinds of the censorship bills. So there's a lots, lots of overlap. And when it comes to these kinds of issues around um, affirmative action and higher education, one of the biggest ways that we see overlap is that there's so much links between race background and social class background that comes to bear on your educational opportunities and potential for success. Take, for example, standardized tests. One of the biggest predictors of standardized tests is your zip code, like, like what, what the resources that your families have is, is going to significantly shape uh, your ability to perform on these tests. And we actually have decades of research that shows this. And why is this significant? Because where you live tends to be highly racially segregated and highly class segregated. It isn't the case that something like standardized test scores are neutral arbiters for whether or not you are accomplished or have potential. They're hugely shaped by background. They're hugely shaped by context. If I were sort of an applicant for higher education, any institution, I would want them to look at the full me, not just one slice of me that might be overly determined by things like race and social class. As we move forward, our job isn't to pretend that race doesn't matter, nor is our job to double down and say, let's continue doing things the way we've always done things. I think that when we're in a moment of a crisis, it gives us an opportunity to pause and say, what's the direction that we should be moving into? And I would say, let's think of universities less and less as trying to cream off the best, as trying to reward those who have already been successful, but rather to think of universities playing a central role in advancing democracy, which means that it should serve all students, including those who have historically been left out of educational sort of enterprises, and prepare us to succeed in the world that is increasingly diverse and to build towards an even better world than we've seen in the past. One of the schools, Harvard, the other, made the point that they had to take into account that people of Asian descent in the school system who want to enter Harvard University scored low on friendliness and things like that. I mean, isn't that a bit insulting, though, to use those kind of arguments? Yeah, definitely. And I feel like one of the things that complicates these conversations is we can find evidence of bias, racial stereotypes that play into decisions that admissions reviewers like the admission staff are making. And by the way, this is the exact same thing that we were hearing in the 1980s in California when the University of California was having an admissions controversy that people were saying, oh, we've, we're finding evidence that there's stereotyping, that there's cultural insens insensitivity, these kinds of biases that are hurting the chances of Asian American students getting in. And isn't that evidence that affirmative action is a problem. And I would say that's really conflating separate issues. Like individual bias in the review process isn't the same as attending to race to build a more diverse 
student population. Yes, we need to address individual bias, racialized bias, stereotyping, cultural insensitivity, because those things do exist, but it's not the same thing as affirmative action, and it doesn't therefore demand that affirmative action be ended. What is so significant about the current cases, UNC, Harvard, versus the last three cases that the Supreme Court has seen, 78, 2003, 2016, is the place of Asian Americans. That people are arguing, well, in the past three cases, it didn't work to say that white students are experiencing discrimination, so maybe this time we should put up Asian American students. Why is this significant? Well, it happened before in other controversies like I just mentioned in California, but also it traces us back to the 1960s when Asian Americans were put up as proof that there can't be racial discrimination because look, they're trying hard and they're making it. So maybe if all of you others could try hard, you too could make it, right? It was a very politically strategic way to hold up Asian Americans as evidence that racism doesn't exist and more importantly, that race-based interventions might actually hurt Asian Americans. Asian Americans have long been used as a wedge against racial solidarity, and we should refuse to be used that way in this instance again. Dr. Kevin Kumashiro is the former dean of the School of Education at the University of San Francisco and co-founder of Education Deans for Justice and Equity. Dr. Kevin Kumashiro is the former dean of the School of Education at the University of San Francisco and co-founder of Education Deans for Justice and Equity. In another legal setback for the Biden administration, a Louisiana district judge prohibited several federal agencies from advising social media platforms on their content moderation policies this week. The injunction was in response to a lawsuit brought by the states of Louisiana and Missouri alleging the feds are overstepping in efforts to get companies to respond to anti-vaccination postings about COVID-19. Judge Terry Doughty cited substantial evidence of a far-reaching censorship campaign. The Justice Department says it's evaluating its options in the case. And another blow for young people seeking gender-affirming care. The Louisiana State Senate on Monday passed a bill banning hormone treatments, gender-affirming surgery, and puberty-blocking drugs for transgender minors in Louisiana. If the House concurs, the legislation will be sent to the desk of Governor John Bell Edwards, a Democrat who opposes it. Opponents of the ban argue gender-affirming care, which is supported by every major medical organization, can be life-saving for someone who's in distress over gender identity not matching their assigned sex. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Fast-moving developments in the case of 42 people charged with domestic terrorism while protesting the construction of a police training facility in Atlanta, popularly known as Cop City. On Friday, June 23rd, DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston announced she was pulling her office out of the multi-jurisdictional prosecution brought in December and March. We had some, some differences, and when I say we, I mean myself in the Attorney General's office, about who should be charged and what they should be charged with. If we can, to how much you can provide... You know, the value set of our office is that I will only proceed on cases that I believe that I can make um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And we only charge those cases in the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office. And so um, in order for me to continue to live up to um, the values of our office and my prosecution approach, Mm -hmm. um, I have to I have to stick with that value. 
Among those arrested and charged with domestic terrorism in March was Southern Poverty Law Center attorney Thomas Webb Jurgens, who was acting as a legal observer for the National Lawyers Guild. Later that month, the Georgia Attorney General exclusively brought new charges against three activists aligned with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. The three were charged with money laundering and charity fraud. One of the 42 arrested and charged under domestic terrorism was in New York City last Sunday. Her name is Priscilla Grimm and she's a Georgia resident. At the Church of Stop Shopping on the Lower East Side, the choir, led by Reverend Billy Talon, sang Grimm's praises. Tears welled up in Grimm's eyes as the singers bid her welcome. Grimm spoke with the news outside the event. She says she spent 31 days in jail before she was bailed out, adding, because DeKalb County withdrew doesn't mean her troubles are over. She recused herself from the case, so now it's up to the Attorney General Chris Carr of Georgia to stop this insane process. And so you're one of those people? I am one of those people, yes. Could you just in two minutes explain it? Sure. So basically I was charged for with domestic terrorism for wearing black and being in a forest. The district attorney of DeKalb County, Georgia, has recused herself from the case. She is refusing to prosecute them. There's 40 of us who have this charge. So now it's up to the Attorney General of Georgia, Chris Carr, if he wants to move forward on the charges or not. He says he does with the flimsiest of evidence. And as someone who survived 9-11 and watched a building crumble in front of me from my rooftop in Brooklyn, these charges are illegitimate, they're absurd, they're ridiculous, and it has to be stopped because if you can charge someone with domestic terrorism for wearing black, you can charge them for breathing incorrectly on a sidewalk. How do you know it was for wearing black? That's what it says on my warrant, for wearing black. On my warrant, it says because she was wearing black clothing, she was arrested. It's not really a reason, it's just like, it's a political charge. Yes, and they lied on the, on the warrants. They said that the Defend the Atlanta Forest Movement was classified as a domestic terrorist organization by the Department of Homeland Security, which was so ludicrous that the Department of Homeland Security came out and said, oh no, no, that's too fascist for us, we did not do that. How did you get into this? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up between Atlanta and Nashville, Tennessee. Both my grandparents are from there. My grandfather Grimm taught at Georgia Tech. I have paintings in my home that my grandmother Grimm painted in DeKalb County, Georgia. I have a huge sense of connection to that area of the country. You're not an outside agitator like they were saying. They thought they said most of the people were from out of town. It's very interesting. You know, on planet Earth, there are no outside agitators. One of the most famous outside agitators now has a day dedicated to him in, by the federal government, Martin Luther King Jr. He was called an outside agitator. He was arrested in DeKalb County and served time while he was driving someone to an oncology appointment because she had cancer. And they arrested him. 
Nothing new here then. Nothing new, no. This is very old. It goes it's back. It's actually down the feeding chain a little bit because that's Martin Luther King you're talking about. Martin they Luther King Jr. Like yes. it's another protester, you know. Right? Yes, and, yes. Yeah. So they're trying to do this, but I don't think it's going to work because we're in a brand new time and age right now of information and transparency. It's not going to hold water because... You can't charge someone for domestic terrorism for wearing black when actual terrorists kill thousands of people at once by driving planes through buildings. What happens next? What happens next? I'm waiting to see what happens next. And they have up to four years that they could charge me. And during that time, who knows what will happen to me so far. I have my Airbnb account has been deactivated. My Chase account has been closed. I lost my job at Fordham University. I'm not sure what's happening next, but I'm just trying to stay strong and work hard, like I've always done. Are you like on probation or they control your movements and what you can say and things like that? I'm not allowed to go to the forest, the Wolani forest anymore. I'm not allowed to talk to with uh, the other people that I got arrested with. Yeah, that's it. I have to check in with somebody called a pre-trial services. It feels like probation without actually being found guilty of anything. It's very strange. So I call him every week and talk to his voicemail and say nothing has changed. Except last week I had a great update with which the DA is not going to prosecute. How much is the bail? Uh, the bail was taken care of by the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. I Three of them got busted. On completely made up charges. One of the women that they arrested can't walk without a walker. And they wouldn't let her walker in didn't stop them from helping you. No, no. And they're back in action now. Bail funds are, and jail support, it's one of the oldest tools of activism in this, the United States. So we have to support people who are putting their lives on the line in any way, shape, or form. You could even say that stealing bread from a grocery store during a time in which there's not a lot of jobs and people are being evicted every day Who's really the criminal there? I think the criminal is this country and that economy that's not caring for that person. That's it. Thank you, and everybody should support and stop Cop City. Priscilla Grimm is a Georgia resident. She spent 31 days in jail on alleged state domestic terrorism charges and still faces prosecution by the Georgia Attorney General. Prosecutors have also floated the possibility of charging demonstrators under state racketeering or RICO charges meant to go after organized crime figures. Attorney Stanley Cohen is part of a team of lawyers representing another protester charged with domestic terrorism. Ariel Ebaugh is 22 years old and a lifelong resident of Georgia. Cohen filed a writ of habeas corpus challenging her detention. Cohen says the state's domestic terrorism laws violate the United States Constitution by punishing freedom of speech. He adds the Georgia Attorney General may be planning to use a law passed to help former President Donald Trump by allowing the governor to remove county DAs he doesn't like. I have no specific knowledge of why the, the district attorney of DeKalb County withdrew, but, but it, I'd like to think that it's not mere in, uh, coincidence that she withdrew not long after we had filed an extensive brief in support of our request for habeas corpus because it highlighted the procedural and substantive issues that are attended. The NLG observer who was arrested and then yeah, held. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't think it's, that may be used as an example. One of the prime reasons we filed the Habe in this particular case before the indictments was we wanted people in power to take a close look at the statute to see if it had constitutional problems either in process or in substance and it had both 
and to consider, do we really want to pursue, do we really want to walk down this road with this statute as the prime moving statute where it's going to, in all likelihood, be struck down eventually? Do we want to spend the time, the energy, the resources where the attorney general's office is pushing for prosecutions under the domestic terrorism statute? And I can't speak for the DA, but I think the facts of most of the people charged with it are clearly, even if the statute survived constitutionality or the constitutional challenge, for almost all of those arrested, there's no application of that statute whatsoever. So I suspect that the DA's office took a broad look, with a broad brush. Most of the charges, or many of the people charged, had domestic terrorism counts. They took a look at the law, took a look at the process, took a look at the statute, and said to themselves, we really don't want to go down this path. And I suspect for political reasons, the Attorney General's office, which is really has been for a number of years, a megaphone for the governor and, and little else, said, no, we have to pursue this. The district attorney for DeKalb County basically said she was ready to, you know, whatever the Georgia version of ACD, everybody, because not that bad of things happen, really, to warrant even misdemeanor charges for the most part. Another government agency saying they want to throw people in jail for 20 years under domestic terrorism charges. Uh, is this country well, so divided? It's a political division. And the other thing you have to understand is this is not as in federal prosecution, but there's been a foreign terrorist organization designation or an individual terrorist designation. This is not a situation where you're dealing with young women and men who joined an FTO and engaged in an activity which furthered its ends. These are young women and men, uh, mostly young women and men, who uh, engaged in speech, association, assembly, and yes, coercive at times, and yes, it wasn't peaceful at times. But to go from that road with their background and what their purpose was about, especially in the light of sweeping community opposition to the project, to calling this domestic terrorism, is a bizarre political gesture a little more. Now, the AG wants to do it because Governor Kemp is all in on this and because other reactionary and Republican state assemblies and legislatures and governors want to make political points out of resistance and opposition and speech and assembly. But, you know, local district attorneys, especially the district attorney of DeKalb County, who has a reputation for being extremely thorough and extremely learned and extremely experienced, took a look at this and said, on the law and on the facts, we disagree and we have the discretion to say, not here, not now. What will be interesting to see is whether under the new Georgia statute, where the legislature has empowered Kemp to appoint a committee of five representatives to pick and choose whether they wish to remove county prosecutors because they believe they're not obeying the law. And I think that was passed primarily to deal with the issue of the investigation in Fulton County of Trump. Attorney Stanley Cohen is part of a team of lawyers representing Ariel Ebaugh, a 22-year-old protester who is facing a uh, long sentence in prison if convicted of domestic terrorism. Cohen filed a writ of habeas corpus challenging her detention as a violation of the First Amendment freedom of speech and assembly. In more movement news, Stella Assange, the wife of the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder and their two children, met with Pope Francis in the Vatican last Friday. She described the Pope as a massive moral protection, adding the two spoke about her husband's day-to-day -day suffering in prison and the cruelty of being away from family. 
Stella Assange says Pope Francis has been following the case and he understands the situation is critical. The Pope hasn't spoken on Assange, but has good relations with fellow Catholic U.S. President Joe Biden. Another world leader did speak out in support of Assange this week, Brazil's President Lula. Você sabe que eu ando um pouco indignado com os defensores de liberdade de imprensa no mundo. Lula said in part, I've been a little outraged at the press freedom advocates around the world. What's happening cannot happen. Assange is imprisoned because he denounced U.S. espionage to the world. It's not even the newspapers that published his material that defend him. In the United States, at least one prominent political figure has spoken out in defense of Assange, environmental lawyer and presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Assange, I'm going to pardon on day one because if it is insane. He's, a, he's effectively a newspaper publisher. And I don't see why every newspaper publisher in this country is not out there, you know, with pitchforks and torches in front of the White House saying, let this guy go. He didn't, you know, what did he do wrong? Renowned California attorney Stephen Rohde is a constitutional scholar and past president of the ACLU of Southern California, among many other laurels. He says Assange has few options and is depending on public support. So unfortunately, the UK courts have denied Assange's latest appeal. It was a cursory opinion. Uh, it didn't give attention to the issues it deserves. Uh, immediately, Assange's defense team filed the necessary papers to appeal, seeking a public hearing in front of multiple judges so that these issues can once and for all be heard. Assange prevailed previously on the grounds that it would be a human rights violation to send him to the United States. Now he is raising substantive issues. If the UK courts continue to be hostile to the freedom of expression and free press arguments, then Julian's only remedy is to go to the European Court on Human Rights to seek an opinion from them. And failing that, Julian Assange, uh, in this unprecedented prosecution, uh, will be sent to the United States to stand trial. Mm -hmm. The United States government doesn't look at it as a persecuting a journalist. They see this as war. He's the enemy, and they're demanding their allies do what's necessary to deliver an enemy for just punishment. What do you say to that point of view that the government is taking towards your arguments, basically? That's Badger. a good way to put it, in the sense that they put it into a militaristic, war-based approach. They see Julian Assange as a threat. Uh, he's a truth-teller. The revelations that underlie the indictment are major because they reveal U.S. Uh, war crimes and wrongdoing. Remember, though, that at least one administration, the Obama administration, saw the flaws in the indictment. They called it the New York Times problem. How do we indict this publisher, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, if we're not uh, punishing the New York Times and other publications, uh, including The Guardian, El Paz, Le Monde, and The Spiegel, uh, all of which, by the way, have come out in a joint letter uh, pointing out the threat to freedom of the press 
imposed by this indictment. But the Trump administration uh, did not uh, follow uh, the Obama administration's decision not to indict Assange. Trump prosecuted. And perhaps what's most shocking is that when the Biden administration had the opportunity to accept the ruling to deny extradition on humanitarian grounds, Instead, the Biden administration appealed that ruling, overturned it in the English courts, and that's where we are now. So this is fully in the lap of Merrick Garland and Joe Biden. The documents that Julian received, they made a splash in their day, but ultimately it was a lot of gossip. A lot of things were learned, a lot of embarrassments. The U.S. didn't lose any battles over it. Why are they pursuing this so much? You know, they haven't been able to prove anything but embarrassment. No lives have been lost. No diplomatic relations have been tarnished. The kinds of arguments that are usually thrown out in these cases. Instead, they are gripped by the fact that they've committed to this prosecution. They're going to see it to the end. And the hypocrisy in this is what's particularly shocking. At the recent White House correspondence dinner, Joe Biden said journalism is not a crime. Of course, he had in mind uh, Evan Gerstovich of the Wall Street Journal. But if you think for a moment, that's a foreign journalist in a foreign country being indicted for espionage. Uh, it's exactly what the United States is doing toward Julian Assange. Yet the Biden administration will rally around that journalist because he's an American and claim that journalism is not a crime. Well, if journalism is not a crime, then the prosecution against Julian Assange is deeply flawed. Many people are beginning to realize this. There's a groundswell of opposition rising up, including in our own government, Democratic representatives Rashida Tlaib, Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, Greg Cesar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon Omar, Ian Presley, have all written to Attorney General Merrick Garland demanding that he drop the charges. Of course, the American Civil Liberties Union, Amnesty International, Reporters Without Borders have, and the governments of Mexico and Australia, Brazil, Germany, Argentina, and the UK have spoken out. Trump launched this era of America first, aren't all the things you just listed, which are meaningful to me, sealing the deal for the persecution of Julian Assange specifically because of what you just said? Yes, it is a hypocrisy at the highest level. We were supposed to be turning away from Trump's policies, and in this case, prosecution. And it's just baffling. When the first argument against Julian that he was that he was helping Trump by helping Russia. Yeah, Trump loved WikiLeaks when it favored him. He virtually said those words, I love WikiLeaks. But uh, he was persuaded, and I don't think we can go farther without mentioning Mike Pompeo. The CIA has had a focus on Assange. Uh, some of the most shocking revelations recently that uh, Mike Pompeo commissioned planning to kidnap and assassinate Julian Assange. Evidence at the extradition hearing in many cases 
was the false testimony of a, a witness. Uh, so this is deeply flawed. In New York, courageous lawyers, Margaret Kunstler and Deborah Hebeck, have brought a civil suit in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York because when they visited Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy, as a part of the protocols, their cell phones were removed. It now turns out there's evidence that UC Global, the Spanish company that provided security to the Ecuadorian embassy, was in fact surveilling, recording, and passing on information to the CIA. There are a number of forums in which the wrongdoing during the Assange prosecution will come to light. It will reveal that this is not only an unprecedented case, because no publisher has ever been prosecuted. We sometimes lose track that there are whistleblowers. I surely want to mention the wonderful Daniel Ellsberg, who passed away recently. He's co-chair of the Assange Defense Committee. He pointed out that he was charged with leaking information. Julian Assange is charged with publishing information at the other end of the spectrum. Yet this prosecution goes on. Sounds like the Leonard Peltier case where he would have been free a long time ago, but there's a, a group of people in the FBI who'll never forgive him because two agents were killed. That's right. These institutions lock in to these prosecutions. On an international level, it's their law and order attitude that uh, some present in a domestic setting. They are trying to protect their national security platform to look uh, tough on terrorism. But in this case, they're being tough on a journalist. Trump said that the press was the enemy of the people. We didn't expect that from Biden. And I do think by writing to Merrick Garland, writing to elected representatives, uh, there is a tipping point that will be reached where this prosecution becomes an albatross for uh, Biden, and he has no upside in continuing to prosecute. Stephen Rohde is a constitutional scholar and past president of the ACLU of Southern California. Julian Assange has spent four years in London's Belmarsh Prison and faces 175 years in prison on espionage charges in the U.S. And in labor news, contract negotiations between UPS and the union representing 340,000 of the company's workers broke down early Wednesday, with each side blaming the other for walking away from talks. The Teamsters represent more than half of the company's workforce in the largest private sector contract in North America. If a strike occurs, it would be the first since a 15-day walkout by 185,000 workers a quarter century ago. One of the largest companies in the country, the company says it delivers the equivalent of about 6% of the nation's gross domestic product. In another momentous Supreme Court decision last Friday, the court ruled 6-3 that federal law does not authorize the Department of Education to forgive student loan debt. Student borrowers have been told by Biden last August the government would cancel up to $20,000 for anyone with a Pell Grant and up to $10,000 for remaining borrowers. Biden's order would have provided debt relief to 43 million Americans. Nearly half would have had their loans erased completely. At a White House news conference, Biden denied he overpromised the student debtors. The question was whether or not I would do even more than was requested. What I did I thought was appropriate 
and was able to be done and would get done. I didn't give Boris false hope, but the Republicans snatched away the hope that it was, they were given, and it's real, real hope. Thank you. Mr. President, will you cancel your authority? Did you overstep your authority? I think the court misinterpreted the Constitution. Biden said his administration will pursue a new path to provide debt relief. And in more education news, as students prepare for continuing those monthly loan payments, private equity firms are cashing in, especially when it comes to preschool students with autism. In a report for the Center for Economic and Policy Research, author Rosemary Bott says private equity firms have dominated autism services in recent years. At the heart of the buyouts is the private equity firm BlackRock. Bott is a professor of human resources studies and international and comparative labor at Cornell University. Private equity is simply an investment fund. So firms raise investment funds from wealthy individuals and pension funds. The funds are virtually unregulated by any government agency. The private equity firms themselves put very little of their own money into the fund. So they are essentially playing with other people's money so they can take more risks. The key is they promise their investors outsized returns that beat the stock market. So it's like, well, how do they do that? First, they buy out a company, in this case, an autism service provider. They use a lot of debt that is loaded on the provider, not on the private equity firm. And these are often providers that never had any debt before. But for the private equity firm, using debt means they can spread their investment fund more broadly. Once they buy out one of these providers, they have to extract enough money, not only to pay these outsized returns to their investors, but also to service the debt. And they promise to do it in a short time frame of maybe three to five years. How do they do that in healthcare or autism services? That's the big question. Here, they have to use financial tactics to extract money that either cut costs substantially or increase revenues, which may lead to improper billing or fraud. Those are the key points about what we know about private equity and how they behave. Well, where's law enforcement if there's fraud? There is often improper billing that's just hard to detect. One way that private equity firms can cut costs in autism services is simply by understaffing. The proper way to take care of a severely autistic child is to maybe have one PhD trained therapist who is providing a plan for the children and two, maybe six or eight children. Well, the private equity firms may have one therapist for 25 children. The regulators are not looking at the staffing levels. They are paying money for each child but they don't actually know the quality of the services being provided. Typically in these particular healthcare sites, they have to be trained uh, behavioral therapists, if you will, but they can still understaff. And also for the technicians, for the, for the people who do day-to-day interactions with the autistic children, again, they may understaff and they, they do not provide a necessarily adequate training or supervision by the therapist. So there are many ways that private equity firms in this autism services can cut costs, and all of those are around labor that is needed because that's the only thing that really provides the care that the children need. Who are some of these 
private equity firms that we're talking about? These are large generalist private equity firms that invest in any industry. And why they got involved in autism services is that in 2015, finally, autism services was covered by government and insurance for the first time. It took 10 years for thousands of parents and autism advocates to go to every state to mandate health care. Prior to that, it was not covered by Medicare or Medicaid or, or private insurance. Suddenly, in 2015, guess what? Private equity financiers saw a gold mine and they jumped in. In five years, between 2017 and 22, the private equity firms were responsible for 85% of acquisitions of autism providers, and now they own almost 400 autism services organizations and employ over 30,000 healthcare professionals. Most of the fees are paid for by the government? It's both Medicaid, but it's a substantial amount of commercial insurance that is required under the law now by states and by the government. In poor neighborhoods, how do parents pay astronomical fees? Until this later period, for every child that needed intensive services, it cost $70,000 a year, and people went bankrupt or they didn't get services. But now, either people can get coverage through their own private insurance, but they can also get covered under Medicaid. People who do not have the income to have the private insurance can get Medicaid funding to cover their children. Is there different levels of care that you get? Every state, because it's mandated at the state level and Medicaid is covered at the state level, every state determines the level of generosity to pay for services. And the big issue is how many hours a week does the insurance coverage cover? Many children need up to 40 hours a week when they're two, three, four years old in order to really get to taking care of these children when they're young. And if you can get that kind of coverage, then usually by the time they're six, seven, eight, they will be able to function fairly well in a school environment, but they need that intensive care early in their childhood. And so it does vary across states how much the generosity is. And this is where private equity has come in. So private equity has bought up these providers and then they will target the more generous states. They often will reduce services in less generous states and increase their offerings in the more generous states. Arkansas, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, places like that, you get one hour a week or something like that. And then in New York, California, of course, you're getting the 40 hours. It's not quite that simple because uh-huh. there are some southern states that actually do provide good funding and others. So it's, it's kind of a, a mixed bag. Let me give you an example yeah. of a private equity firm that just took over a center for autism because they just ran it into the ground. The company is called the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Blackstone, which we all know, the largest private equity firm in the world, bought this company in 2018. The company was founded in 1990, and for 30 years, the owner built it, become one of the largest providers with some 
250 sites and 6,000 employees. Then it was sold to Blackstone in 2018 because Blackstone promised it would expand even more because there's such growing need for autism services. One in 36 kids nationwide aged eight are now affected by autism. CARD, it's well known in the autism community, was founded in 1990, grew over 30 years to become one of the largest providers in the country, and it was sold to Blackstone in 2018. The owner stayed on for a while, but was transitioned out. She left because Blackstone was not listening to her and what she said needed to be done for these children and for the services. Blackstone hired a lot of top executives, they doubled and tripled salaries, they added layers of management, and they took out resources at the bottom to cover this kind of management overhead at the top. They did a number of things to mismanage. They reduced training, they increased the number of patients or students per therapist. They also went to states and said, if you don't increase our reimbursement rates, we will withdraw from your state. And in fact, they did. So in 2022, they closed all of the card facilities in 10 states. And they literally cut the number of centers from 250 to about 130. In the meantime, it had loaded card with substantial debt. They're now talking $260 million. Most of the experienced staff, of course, had quit. It had really, really high turnover rates. The true tragedy is that this spring, it went bankrupt. It went bankrupt, and it could not find a buyer for the company. And finally, just a few weeks ago, the original owner stepped back in, assumed all of the debt that Blackstone had laid on the company and is now trying to rebuild the company. Going back to the days of greed is good in the 1980s when you had leverage buyouts and things like that. This is a direct descendant of the leverage buyouts of the 1980s. That's what private equity is. They just renamed themselves a different title so that people would not associate them with the leverage buyout movement of the 1980s. As soon as the government took over something to help people, they turned it over to private companies. They destroyed it in the search for profit, and we're back to where we started again. It was not the government. The government did not turn over the services to um, you know, private equity. The services were being provided by providers, either nonprofit or for-profit small companies. It's that private equity could then scoop in and take advantage because of all the resources they have and buy out these companies. And so where the government, the problems are, they're not sufficient regulatory oversight of the services so that we know we're getting quality care when there is government or private insurance company coverage. A horrifying thing happens and everybody says we need more oversight. We just have to keep on fighting to make sure that there's more and more oversight. We are seeing now the Biden administration is looking into much more oversight in nursing homes where there's been a lot of fraud and misuse of Medicaid and Medicare funds. We just have to keep fighting. We can't stop.
the same people who fought for coverage now need to go and fight for states and the government to mandate things like minimum staffing levels. That would be an easy thing to do. There are some states that, for example, require minimum staffing levels for nurses in hospitals. That is not a heavy lift. People would say, yeah, that makes sense. There are ways of minimal intervention that could bring about important changes. Rose Bott is Professor of Human Resources Studies and International and Comparative Labor at Cornell University. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders, CARD, was founded by Doreen Granpisha, who sold the company to BlackRock for $600 million. After the company lost $82 million last year and faces bankruptcy by this August, she's been trying to repurchase CARD for $25 million to try and save it. In local news, former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and Charlene McRae are separating after 30 years of marriage. They plan to continue living together in their Park Slope home, but will start dating other people. De Blasio, 62, and McRae, 68, married in Brooklyn in 1994 and have two adult children together. They agreed to separate about two months ago after de Blasio asked his wife why she isn't lovey-dovey anymore, which prompted a deep discussion about their relationship, McRae told the New York Times. They both agreed their political careers took a toll on their marriage, also blaming the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, yesterday was the 4th of July. After bountiful rains, New York City saw clear skies and cooler temperatures, and a crowd ambled over to the East River to watch the annual fireworks. In Coney Island, competitive eater Joey Chestnut won the 16th Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. He chowed down 62 of the dogs in 10 minutes. While Mickey Sudo became the women's champion, she ate 39 and a half. I feel great, Chestnut added. I've got leftover room, so I'll be having some beers later. And that's the news. You can hear the news at SoundCloud.com. Search for the news with Paul DiRienzo. The news is also available on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, and many other providers. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.